Hi, and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. Today, I'm chatting with Sabrina Richmond. Sabrina had a background in journalism, but was left unable to write after an economic downturn and experiences with racism silenced her voice. A song in her head led to a reawakening and a multifaceted career as a writer, director, performer. I was shattered, but I became somebody that I am actually enjoying a lot now. Hi, Sabrina. It's great for you to join me today. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing pretty well this week. How are you? Good. Yeah. Good spirits today. Yeah. I slept well. I found, I don't know about you, but like during lockdown, there've been like weird sleep patterns. In a sense, I'm a little bit of an insomniac and I think creative brains have their own sleep patterns. (laughs) But yeah, so it's always nice when I have this gorgeous couple of hours of sleep and you wake up where you feel like your cells have, yeah, just regenerated. I definitely feel that, especially like you say, during lockdown, my sleep patterns, I've been staying up way too late. Yeah. And sometimes that means sleeping in. Sometimes it means a very early and difficult morning. Yes. (laughs) The longest meeting in the morning, you're just like, kick in, kick in caffeine. (laughs) I have been drinking a lot of coffee. (laughs) Creative minds, I never really thought about it that way. I just thought it was my own overly active mind. But there is something that I feel like a lot of times my insomnia is ideas at work or ideas that haven't quite surfaced yet. Yeah. I think so. And I think one of the strange things, someone asked me earlier during lockdown, like, all writers are so alone. And I was just like, I I don't feel alone. I'm with my characters. I'm in their world. So I think there's a part of your writer brain, in a sense, that's actively always processing and doing stuff. And it takes a lot of practice to learn to live with that and kind of be, I'm doing this. So like for myself, I find there are certain things I have to, yeah, I'm trying to think of making sense now because I'm like, oh, why are we we even started on this (laughs) track? (laughs) The first part of every time I get on an interview like this, it's let's just have a conversation. And then it turns to where, where how did we get here? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So I'll shush, I'll shush. No, it's perfect. I love it. As somebody who's been such an avid reader and actor and other things throughout my life, I always feel that feeling you say about being with your characters. I'm one of those people that when a really good book ends, like Mm. my whole world comes crashing down because I've lost people. No, exactly. I I totally relate. And it's the same even with a good show that you've loved. You just feel like, what's going to happen now? I've always loved that feeling. I haven't had a lot of time to read a lot of fiction. So that's my plan for this Christmas break. But there's that feeling where you've spent so much time with these people as a reader, and now you have to say goodbye to them. And there's this ache you feel sometimes. And I think as a writer, you have to prepare to let them go because that's what you're making them for. They're meant to live their own lives outside of whatever world. But I love the sort of creative romance of that time that you spend with them. And I especially love before you start sharing it with people because it's just you and those characters and what they're doing. And that's of such a beautiful time because I think of all the stuff I create as an artist as an embryo. So it's a creative embryo and it's forming and it's growing and it's growing. And that time is so precious. And I think it's lovely that you 
get to spend more time with it before everyone weighs in or you say, what is this thing? Because the moment you start asking, what is this thing? Before it's ready, sometimes that can be a destabilizing process for the work, I think. Having that time alone within your world with your characters. Yeah. That makes me really inspired to actually do more writing, something I always say I'm going to (laughs) do. Please do. It's just, yeah, it's just you and whatever those things are. And there's so little judgment. If you're able to, I think everyone has their own way of getting to it. But if you really allow it to be just you and those people or that person, it's quite sweet, I think. So it's not a secret anyway, but obviously we've now revealed that you are a writer. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, you're here to talk about the changes you've had in your life and your career and things that have happened after 35 or 35 and beyond. One of the things that really interested me that I think started much earlier was your how much you've traveled and the fact that you've lived in seven, is it seven other yeah. countries? Seven countries in total? Yes. How does that happen? I know it's insane, but also I, I feel like my family set me out to live like that, really. I was born to a family living in exile from the apartheid regime. And from the beginning, you already have two homes, in a sense. There's the home your family has left and therefore create in the sort of spiritual, but also through food, through music. And then there's the home you're born in. So I already grew up with these two sets of worlds that I was interested in So from the time I was a kid, I was already aware of that, your identity and what home wasn't necessarily the location that you were in. What happens when a family goes into, at least for my family, living in exile, there's a whole host of things that come with being in that situation. And I think what it meant for them is they would just have to find lots of different ways of finding opportunities. So unlike, and very much like today here in Britain, for example, it's not easy to be a recent immigrant. So you have to be very, I think people do their best to survive. But what it instills in you is this capacity to evolve. And so for a lot of my aunts, some of them went on and lived in, in Sweden. I had an aunt who went to study medicine in Russia. So from the time I was a kid, there were just loads of family members living in other parts of the world. And when I returned with my mom, then I was a teenager to South Africa. I also had my own version. I think 12 years ago, I started needing to reconcile who I thought I was, my identity, where I belonged, home. Uh, and to come back to your actual question, <laughs> this is how Sabrina talks in circles. You don't want to be in my brain. Yeah. So after South Africa, I did my uni and all of that. And then I fell in love and I moved to Norway, which was really just one of the toughest immigrant experiences I've had. I think it totally altered and shattered my sense of self because it was bloody hard to live there. Is it a very homogenous culture? Is it very not immigrant friendly? I think what's hard to say this is because it's a beautiful country. And I'm not just saying that to be like, in The Godfather, he starts with, I love America, but this is my problem. (laughs) (laughs) It's genuinely a gorgeous country. I struggled when people said, oh, it's homogenous. That's why we're not used to immigrants. For me, I just feel like, how come it works the other way? How come immigrants are used to the people (laughs) whose country they come to? It doesn't make sense as a kind of argument in my brain. I think it was that feeling that 
there was a hierarchy in terms of what kind of immigrant you were, where, what location you came from. So if you were from the Asias, there was the thought that you were extremely industrious and very clever and you had access to different things. And of course, not unlike other parts of the world, when you're from the African context, you're thought of as needing, you're lacking, you don't come with any skills, we need to teach you everything. By the way, we've been doing live aid for your continent since time. So that attitude persists even in circles of really intelligent people. So it's just this thing that you're lacking, you're there and you should be lucky to be there. So I found that I couldn't cope with that. And the kind of family I come from, education is a massive thing. So I just thought, and I was 25 when I fell in love. So at that point, you don't think you're a baby. Actually, if I look back, I was like, I was a baby. What was I thinking? Someone should have told me, ready for such a massive change. But because education was such a big thing, I just thought, look, you're university educated. You have a sense of travel. And I really just thought I wore that as a badge. I was just like, I'll cope. I've done so much traveling. I've got so much internationalism in my family. And I think when I look back, I was like, how could you not have thought that it'll be really hard to be the only black person <laughs> in that neighborhood and for miles and to go to dinner parties? I was moving to a place I didn't speak the language and I just thought I'll do really well because I actually like languages. At the time, I learned them fast. I didn't really do particularly well, but I think that had to do with the shock to my brain and system. And the job I'd gotten was English language. So I thought that will also give me time. And I thought, we're in love. What else could go wrong? And that's the beauty of being 25 is you're supposed to think nothing can go wrong. Otherwise, you'll never do anything. So it was just hard. The racism of low expectations was the hardest thing. I think that breaks you down in ways that you can't imagine because it's and there were some really crazy experiences like once my husband and I were going we went out to the movies and we were going home at the end of the evening and so we're just waiting at the bus stop and some drunk guy comes up to me and he's like shouting stuff at me and my Norwegian wasn't good at the time but I could tell it wasn't good he was just like <laughs> he's not saying how lovely to meet you <laughs> but he was asking me if my husband was going to fuck me. That's literally what he said. Because at the time in Norway, all people of African descent were seen as sex workers. And so there was a crazy thing where if you're walking the streets uh, and my husband is white Norwegian, people were just like, who are you? It was the, cr I'd never, I was just like, hey, I grew up in probably one of the most racialized countries in the world, but no one's ever come up to me and said that. <laughs> yeah. So that to me was just, I was shocked in a way that, I, I, yeah, I'd never experienced that. And you sometimes as a South African, you feel like, I know racism, but this was different. This was so different and it was so vulgar and it was also so silent. So I remember retelling the story at like a dinner or something and there was no one says anything. And those were little things I didn't realize I needed to get used to because the family I grew up in and the context I grew up in, it's the kind of thing where, where something is said, it's acknowledged and people try to say, I hear you. Yes. Whereas, and that's quite common in British culture as well, where people are like, nothing, nothing gets said because people are, oh, I'm too embarrassed. And then you as the person telling that story has to comfort everyone because they feel so bad. <laughs> I feel like that's where we are with racism in the UK and in yeah. the US as well. 
Yeah. is that there's this constant feeling that black people have to fix the racism yeah. and black people aren't the problem. Yeah. The problem is the racism. And therefore, if people who aren't black don't get involved or whatever culture or sexuality or yeah. whatever is being targeted, if everyone doesn't get involved and say something, then it's never going to change. Yeah. My fear is, to, I have lots of fears. One of them <laughs> is to be a white feminist, as in yeah. I'm feminist, but I'm only going to stand up for people who look like me and sound like me. And I don't ever want to be that person. But you also don't want to be the person who's, I'm going to be the white savior. Yeah. So personally, I have to say something. I can't let something like that slide. If I heard that story, when I just heard that story, it's shocking. It's horrible. But I do think there are people that are, oh, I don't know how to handle it. So I just won't. Yeah. And there's something very, because for me, that moment felt a lot like a second assault of my physical space and my ability to just be a human being and be in love with my partner. I don't have to answer every question about interracial relationships by my existence. And I think what's really tough at the moment in England is no one wants to have the fight. This part is hard. There's a lot of, in our culture here in Britain, there's this, I don't want anyone to be uncomfortable. You know what? This shit ain't comfortable. <laughs> Nobody is supposed to feel comfortable solving generations old problem like racism. I understand that a lot of white folk are going, I don't want to say the wrong thing. And my stance on that is usually, if someone's coming from a genuine point of questioning and being like, I really don't know, I think most people can tell. I think we can all tell what is racist behavior from our end. And I feel when people have conversations where they're just like, I really don't know how to address you. If you said that to me, how would you like to be addressed? That's different to giving me the label to, do you know what I mean? I understand there's a lot of fear around, I don't want to be labeled as such because there are lots of people who've done great work, but this isn't about that. This is about a system. This is about saying, even in our sector, do we feel that it's normal that there are no black people who run the majority of, is that normal? Like in London, where there are a lot of global majority people, that's not normal. And also just saying, if you look even at the government, is it possible statistically that only two schools can produce prime ministers in the country. That just says, <laughs> do you understand? It just says the game is rigged. So we've got to, this part is hard. And if we accept that it's hard, you can start getting into much more open conversation. And I do feel like the conversation, th that's the only way anything ever changes, is conversation and asking the questions. And the questions yeah. are hard. Like I said, I do have this fear that I will come across the wrong way, say the wrong thing. Yeah. But if you don't ask, nobody's going to tell you or somebody's going to get angry because you are going to keep saying the wrong thing <laughs> or just bulldozing your way without asking the question. Yeah. That's not acceptable. No. Pretending things haven't happened. No, because they have. We can't keep on. It just doesn't work that way in every whether you're looking at the Me Too movement or race, you just can't be like, oh, it's that was in the past. It's not in the past if it's continued the way in which people are treated and what jobs they have access to and how equality looks. If things still look the same as they did a couple of years ago, then no, it's not the past. 
That's true. And even the part that is in the past is so recent in so many situations that things still need to change quite a bit. Yeah. So once again, we've gotten off track, but I I know a lot. I'm really glad we're having this conversation regardless. (laughs) (laughs) What happened next? So how long were you in Norway? How long could you put up with that life? I always feel so guilty because I think my husband is a pretty stellar kind of person. And I think it was also really sad and painful to watch him experience what I was experiencing. It wasn't just me. But I was there probably, I was on and off because there were visa things, which is like another. Tell me about visas. There are oh, no. <laughs> yes, you should know. You should know something about the visa life. You just get a letter. So there was this feeling that your life is controlled by some automated machine that sends this white envelope every now and then. And I remember I wasn't even called on my name in these envelope in these letters. It was like, dear reference person. <laughs> You know what I mean? So it was just, and then there were points I had to go and come back. And it it was my whole life. Our whole life was surrounded by that. And that went on probably two years and a bit. And then we were like, you know what? We are, we need to do something different. And so we moved uh, to the Middle East. My husband's in development aid. And it was really just breath of fresh air. And we moved to Palestine, which as a South African, we have this connection to and hoping beyond hopes for its emancipation and it was just it was seeing in color again and after that it just became a sequence of places we shifted to for a while but all the time I was for a while I freelanced but after 2008 the there was the financial crisis which is hilarious because now here we are in one again yes so lots shifted and that this is more helping with writing articles, editing, writing reports thing. But that work just started getting less. So as you were living in different places, you were always freelancing as a journalist or how did that work? More editing and writing. But that was still not, at the time, I didn't really realize it because I think I was still very, it takes a while because you're glued to your, what you think you are you train in something, you start doing a couple of things and you're like, this is my skill set. And I could see that it was going away in terms of how much more work was coming in and how much was actually being paid for. So that question was already there pretty early on. What are you really doing? But you don't realize that you have to answer it in a sense. I think you just keep going. You just keep going. And I think After I'd left Norway, I was just in bad shape mentally. You lose a lot of confidence when I think my self-esteem was tied too much into my job. I do feel like it's very difficult not to just take it personally when it's not going well. Yeah, it really is hard. And I think because of how I was wired and raised, if you want something, you go after it and you find a way you try to get skills to do it. So I was used to my identity as being self-sufficient and that everything you tried to get, you could get it. That was my brain. (laughs) And I laugh now because I think it's the joy of that time. And I think the whole job market's so different now. There's so much about how you brand yourself and how employers look at you and all of that. It was different at the time. I always just thought if I was good at something 
or if I worked hard enough at it, very much the American dream, work hard and you will. But yeah, I always thought, obviously it's going to work out. And I still have that mindset. I'm still way too optimistic about a lot of things probably, but there is something very different in the younger generations now that I think the world's kind of beat them down already a bit. I do love that American dream thing. It has its problems, but what I like about it is that it's also focusing the energy on you, what you can try to evolve to. And don't get me wrong, there's systems, there's structures, there's privilege, there's all of that. But just on a kind of where does my self-esteem lie as a person, it's also coming back to looking at you. And I think that's why I loved, by the time I the whole journey of migration, I'd moved to New York to do my actor program. I just felt like it felt like the absolute right place to be. Because I had initially thought, oh, I'll train here, had an awful audition, and I cried (laughs) all the way home on the train. (laughs) I literally did. It was uncontrollable. First, I sat in the park, I cried, and then I was like, oh, I need to get my train. And then I got on the train and I cried. (laughs) But when I got to New York, there was something I felt that I hadn't felt in a really long time. It was possibility. New York feels, it does feel like possibility. It just does. Fast. It's so intimidating. It sometimes is so horrible, but it yeah. also feels you're so alive and anything is possible. When th- th- the old song is true, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. But it does <laughs> it feels like that. It's like you yeah. crossed into Manhattan, or I lived in Brooklyn and worked in Manhattan, and oh. there's a buzz. It was just. And I think it, it always feels like it's on the verge of bursting into something, and you don't know whether it's going to be good or bad. <laughs> Is it going to be a song or is it going to be? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I love on the on the subway, you can, you can hear people sing and people recite poetry and there's just like an energy that you can't. And every city has its energy, but I felt like at the time that I was going there, it was the perfect intersection. I was getting ready to shake off everything that had ultimately, I think, just shattered my who I was at that point in time. And so meeting New York, you were like, this is where I'm supposed to be. So you had a a period of not getting jobs, unemployment, things that made you just feel, like you said, your whole identity was tied up into it. And what actually inspired this acting audition to begin with? First the bad one and then the good one. (laughs) (laughs) It dates back because I was always interested in the performing arts. And I grew up in this family where we did all the cousins did the Christmas play for the family. So we would enact the nativity. And we used to, I don't know if you remember, there was a show on American TV, but we got it in uh, Zambia as well, Showtime at the Apollo. Yeah. Oh, yes, of course. So all the cousins would do like Showtime at the Apollo and you had to come up with an act. It is Showtime at the Apollo. Tonight. <laughs> Tonight, yes, that was it. <laughs> It was so brilliant. So there was always a lot of, I grew up with artists, so dressmakers and carpenters and dancers, and my mom's a poet, but it wasn't the kind of thing you did for a living. That just wasn't a thing you did. But I'd grown up with so much music and all of that. So when I left at the end of high school, I really wanted to get into a drama school, but that just wasn't possible at that time. So it's, it, I think it was an old desire that I went through a process. It wasn't like, yes, that's what I'm doing. 
what I started trying to do was look at what did I like doing. Writing was a part of that, which I was like, that's something you can do and practice by without needing to go study and all of those things. Performing, I was like, how am I even going to get started with that? Because I didn't understand how I was going to shift from here to here. So it was clear to me that some kind of study needed to happen. I'd not been able to write for about five years, but I remember one night I just couldn't sleep and I had this song in my brain. And so I woke up and I wrote it down. And later on, I talked to a friend who teaches singing. I was like, I just want to do a couple of classes and can we make a song and have a melody to this? But slowly after that, I was physically feeling the change, like from those years of just being silent, because the culture in Norway asked me to be silent because you had to learn how people, it's even more than code switching. And I guess I didn't get to the part where I learned how to do that really well. But it just felt like you had to be silent. People were just like, don't do this, don't do that. This is not okay. And your body tries to protect itself. And so I was starting to feel that my body was asking for something else. I just wanted to speak. And it was like something had just opened up in me. And I was so pleased that it was writing because I always did. I always wrote poetry as a kid and little short stories. Not that they were good, but the fact that it was something I enjoyed is what matters. And I think I, I was, I tried to pinpoint when exactly I typed in drama schools. I have no idea how that happened, but I just knew that was the thing. And I was 35. So I felt like I can't do a three year program, not just financially, but also in terms of time. What's a realistic amount of time to spend? So I was looking up one year programs. And I found the school in London and I was like, oh, that's good. It's a year. That feels like you could really commit. And if it's not working out, it's also fine. You've spent a year learning something. And so I have this audition set and it was for January. And so that whole of that whole Christmas before was so crazy because it was like, <laughs> I hadn't, and I'd done in uni, I'd done like a play and all of that. So I had had experience of learning lines and all of that, but it was just different because it felt like the stakes. But I was also really excited because I was just like, I'm just doing this. What I didn't realize is that majority of the other people at that thing had actor coaches and had the perfect monologue selected for them. So I spent the whole of December reading a bunch of plays and trying to find the right monologue for myself. And I went, in the moment you hear what people are talking about, you're like, oh, so everyone's been coached. <laughs> so you're just like, shit, what's happening? And yeah, I, it didn't go well. And it was just so brutal. It was really a brutal process. I started looking up schools in New York and then I was like, oh, there's a couple of one-year programs. And I got into two of them and that was really nice. I'd done my audition by self-tape and all that. And I chose the one that was going to help me with the visa stuff because I was like, no, I can't deal with <laughs> dealing with it on my own. Did you go on your own? I did. And that wasn't even scary because I feel like I've grown up in this family where I've seen my mom just do this giant journey. Like it was after when I was a kid and South Africa and Nelson Mandela was released. My mom was just like, I'm returning to my homeland. So it was this just giant journey. What was scary was how would I change? Would I be the kind of person? I know what I was thinking, but I was also afraid that people wouldn't recognize me afterwards. 
And what was great after that year was the people who really love you, they just like, actually, welcome back. Because for that whole period, I was unemployed. I just became less and less of myself. And you become quieter and quieter because I've always been very, like, yeah, talkative. Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think talkative is a bad thing, personally. <laughs> no, my mom's always like, you talk a lot when I was a kid. But I think the reason I talk a lot also is the reason journalism was interesting because all you did was talk to people. You talk to people, they tell you a bit of their story. So even as a writer or as a maker, all of the stuff you think about comes from conversations, stuff you watch, stuff you engage with. But it was strange to be in a little dorm room for the first time in a really long time. That was different. And I went really brave. My husband had said to me, are you quite sure you want to be sharing? And I was like, yes, I want to do the whole experience. I want to have a roommate. I want to just have things like, oh, did you use my toothpaste again? Whatever. But it turned out that that wasn't, I was, I, my roommate, probably the first day she walked in, she froze at the door, which was really weird. I was like, okay, that's a weird vibe. And I was already like making my little corner of the room nice as having like my family photos up there and my nieces and nephews. And she was, oh, so which one of these is your kids? So I was just like, I don't have babies. Uh, and she was like, oh, okay. Which was like, that going to be your first question? Not hi, where are you coming <laughs> from? That's fine. That's fine. But really quickly, probably by the Monday, got an email saying there was going to be some kind of roommate swap and I eventually caught up with her. And she just said, I've been living with old people all my life. I don't really want to have an old roommate. <laughs> and I laugh now because I was so, it's like my Meisner teacher says, there's no parent who forces you to go to an acting program. So everyone who's here is here because they want to be. So I was just Again, really, even if I was 35, I was just like, everyone who wants to be doing this is here. So what we'll have in common is that we love the performing arts. But it wasn't that way. And that was my first sort of major, oh, yeah, you're 35. That's a problem. If you think just because I'm 35, I'm going to be checking on what you're doing. I'm like, I'm here to sort out my fucking life. I don't, <laughs> I'm not here to see what you're doing, who you're having sex with. I'm not here for that. So actually, it's an indication that you yourself need to grow up. We would often, some of the scenes we went over had sex and there was always, and these are like 18, 19, 20 year olds. And it was just like, oh, super, what's Sabrina going to think about this? And you're just like, I've been fucking since before you had your period. So don't worry. <laughs> I can read a scene with sex in it. Okay. <laughs> One of the things you're working on now has to do with sexual pleasure. And I think it's really interesting that you brought that up about young people versus once we get to be 35 or older. But the idea that we learn more about pleasure and we learn more about sex, we're more comfortable. And that obviously these kids are thinking you're going to be uncomfortable about it. Yeah. But I'm intrigued. What draws you to that subject? I think a big part of it, all the work I make comes from just questions. And I think once I entered the sort of acting world, and even right from that acting program, I started to see that you ceased being a woman because you weren't over 30. Worse, you were 35. Do you know what I mean? Like shock horror. <laughs> that you didn't have the right to enjoy sex or talk about pleasure or be even show that you're attracted to someone. And I found that, I just found it abnormal. I found it strange to sit with a group of women who would 
feel like they needed to alter the conversation because I had come there. And I was just like, you're going to get to 35. It's not that far away. I need to tell them a secret, but once they reach past 20 or 35, whatever age that is, you start to feel more comfortable in your body. And yeah, personally, I don't know, I can't speak for everyone, but I do feel like maybe we're more comfortable talking about sexual pleasure or we're more comfortable yeah. saying to a partner, I'd rather have this or Absolutely. it's not this, I'm trying to impress a boy anymore. It's I'm here for the party yeah. too. <laughs> yes, no, exactly. And I think you know exactly what your body enjoys. As an actor, I'd done this one show and there was absolutely, there wasn't even physical contact, not even a hug. It was, the story was back in the day, this character I was playing had a romantic relationship with another character and they were trying to reconcile what had happened in the present day. So all there is these two characters sitting together. But my co-actor acted like I had the plague and he was so anxious, but he was also making these comments about oh, you can't wear short skirts anymore, you're past that age. And it was just so crazy. But I remember saying, you don't actually have to want me, we're acting. Secondly, Beyonce isn't here, she's not the one doing the line, so sorry. But most importantly, actually the best part for me about acting is being in that space with another human being and being like, we're trying to make something. That's so special. And when those two people are really in that scene together, it's so special. And so I felt very, I was offended that he was wasting acting time with his own stuff. I was just like, I'm, who are you? This is work. I'm not approaching you in a bar. This is work. Yeah. So I felt I was just offended really that the work, because I came out of New York just with this drive and hunger that I always had, but it was just expanded and so for me I was looking for people to take this shit seriously in the best way possible do you know what I mean because you're like hey look I know what it feels like to be asleep so I'm not coming to do this thing to be asleep if you don't want to be here don't be in this job because I think people deserve better so I noticed stuff like that there was always and of course agents were like don't worry you'll never be cast in this role because you're not this and you're not sexy and you're not that. And you're just like, oh, so even what you're capable of doing doesn't matter. You still, people still need to want to fuck you, which is basically how the Me Too movement started. They were just like, that's what they were facing. They're going to casting rooms and they were being like, no, you have to be more this, you have to be more that. And that just made me think a lot about who has the right to be sexy, who has the right to be sexual, who has the right to explore and express and actually, all the stuff of this generation, if we just look at music, you know, I was listening to Cardi B's lyrics, and she's, you know, I think it's Megan Thee Stallion, is, I want you to park your Big Mac truck in my little garage. <laughs> Those are the lines. I know it's, it's so poetic how I say it. <laughs> but I was just like, firstly, my vagina isn't a garage. It's not a storage place for a vehicle. No. Do you know what I mean? That's all it is. It's a little storage space. And then also it was like... For your Big Mac truck. And I was like, what are these lyrics? <laughs> and I know it sounds, oh, you're so old. But all it says to me is that she has taken the exact same paradigm of thinking that feminists are now saying this is not right for rap lyrics. 
which are always just being like, you're this, I'm going to give you this. Like, you don't have to give me anything. How about we both enjoy this experience? Anybody think about that? So I just started to feel suffocated actually in conversations with women because I just thought the paradigm of thinking is still very much in the framework of what a lot of women are claiming is problematic with how men think and men talk. So just if you're talking about a Big Mac truck, what's different to TI saying, if you want it, I've got it and I'll yeah. give it to you. It's the exact fucking same. So I was just like, we need to find a way to get back to what is desire. When you've got comedians, there's just so much fascinating material about how offended people are that your clitoris has all these beautiful nerve endings and you can experience the best orgasm of your life with proper stimulation. It's the one human body part, male or female, that actually is only there for pleasure. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't it just, and why should we be so afraid of it? And why should we be ashamed that, that that's what gets you going? Do you know what I mean? Because I think, and for me, it all comes down to expectations and they're both harmful to both men and women. Because I think men have been told, there's lots of women who don't have vaginal orgasms and they've been told, oh, you don't know what you're doing. You're just That's just how her apparatus works. So it doesn't matter if it's not your penis doing it. In fact, it can. Sorry, this is now turning into a sex show. But <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So I'm just, I'm asking loads of questions about that because I find it, why, why should it upset anybody? And I think it's even more dangerous that all of our sexual encounters, especially through pop culture, music, film, it's all about power and control. And you're like, that's fine if that's like your thing. But there's something for me that isn't right because it feels nobody cares about anyone's desire. You're just supposed to be the Big Mac truck. <laughs> My vagina is the garage. <laughs> so who's happy in that? Nobody. You're just fulfilling a set of expectations. Big Mac truck doesn't sound ecologically friendly. <laughs> We've talked about that you are now a writer, playwright, actor, you are a director as well. I, you talked about a couple projects you're working on, but how did everything all come together? Because it seems like you're really busy. You have all these interesting different collaborations with theaters and people are supporting you and wanting for you to tell your stories. How did that happen? Gosh, um, I feel just so grateful because I think I had no idea when I left New York what I was going to do, how it was going to materialize, because I felt like, okay, you have gained these skills, but how do you actually do it? Because it was like, no, you need an agent. And it was like, no, you need work to get an agent. And you're like, okay, there already you're in a kind of tailspin. Yes. And I think the truth is as cliche as it's going to sound is I, when I started out, I remember one of my teachers said to me, you are the CEO of your own company and figure out what your mission statement is, what kind of work you want to do and what you stand for. I'm going to write that down for myself. Right? <laughs> it's really good. It was just a really clear, because I remember I moved to England August and then the paperwork took a while because it takes a while. <laughs> and so I was only able to apply for certain things like January. So I spent a lot of that time looking at what am I interested in? What do I like? 
And it was as simple as what's the kind of stuff I like to watch? What do I like about those things? And then looking at, is this work I can make? Because there's genres where you're like, oh, the casting world, how it works, I probably won't be in there. But I could actually make that as a writer or a director. So I think a lot of it, I came with this gusto. But in that first year, I was so wiped out with exhaustion because I used so much creative energy. Just it's, it's a feeling like no other when you've been asleep and then you're awake and then you're like, I've got to get it all out right now. I really need to do it because I just had all the energy in the world. But I also started to realize that some experiences were just not worth my while. And so I was like, I need to come up with a system of how I choose. And initially it was people, places, things, things, that's the show, project. So it was like, do I like the project? Do I like the people? Do I, am I interested in working at this venue? But what I realized is it has to be all three, can't be one out of three or two out of three. The lovely Rhea Perry, she had said, one of her mentors said to her, just know what you're doing stuff for, kudos, cash or kicks. So mm. if you put cash, you know exactly what you're going to do, a professional job. Aging for the kudos, so maybe you're not getting paid, but this is a great experience. It's going to look good. It's going to get you to places. Because I think it sounds bad when I say it, but I think that's also okay. But by the first year, I decided there were certain acting experiences. I was like, this is not, doesn't feed me in any way. And that immediately led me into submitting. And that's what's beautiful about London, actually pre-lockdown, I don't know what that looks like now, was that there were so many scratch nights, you could write a 10-minute thing and you could get your thing in and it could be performed and you could see it and you could learn from it. And it takes time. And I think the more I performed, the clearer my writing became. And then directing, I started doing because when you create a piece of writing, unless you're in a network of people that when, of course, being an immigrant, I didn't have any of that. My all the people from my acting program were in New York. So I didn't have that network here. Normally you would train here and then you'd be like, oh, hey, I know you like movement stuff. Do you want to help me devise this thing? So I didn't have that. And I started going, I've written a thing. It's gotten onto this platform. Sometimes if you're lucky, the platform assigns a director and that's lovely. But it started becoming that, well, if I didn't direct the thing myself, it would just die there. And that's how I started doing it. I think all of them inform each other. I think as a director, because I perform and I write, I have a sensitivity to working with writers and to performing. So I feel like that makes me a good director, hopefully. And it's just become certain projects you create and you're just like, yeah, I'm happy to hand this one over or I want to perform in this one or I want to direct this one. And what's nice about being a theatre maker is you can, there's nobody frowning on written and performed by because you're making the thing. You spend a year in a building and you make stuff and you're playing the space. So all of those skills are required. And I think what's different in England to the States where it's really encouraged to have all of those things. There's loads of people like, I'm a producer, writer, I'm an actor, director. Here, there's a lot of apologizing for it. And I don't because I think I know what my life was like before a couple of years ago. So I will never apologize for my 
creative energy, enthusiasm, because I was lost. I was just gone. So for me, anyone who's just, I see you everywhere you're doing, you're just like, but it's stuff I want to do. It's interesting you say about not apologizing for it, because as someone who produces and acts, and I do feel sometimes the need to apologize. Or if I'm producing something and putting myself in it, I'm just like, but where is the validation for me that somebody wanted to cast me? Mm. I had to cast myself, that kind of thing. I know. Like you say, if it's something that, that feeds me, if I feel really passionate about it, and I'm working to honor the writer or working with a great director, the experience is always amazing. And I'm always so glad I did it. And it's not the same because I'm not necessarily writing it and performing in it. But there is this sort of, oh, I'm sorry, I hope I'm good enough for it. <laughs> and it's like, I know, and it's, top apology. it's crazy. I think the culture in Britain is too much apologizing for everything. And there's a strange thing where women especially are being told, oh, just speak directly. But I've found as an immigrant, when I do, people are like, you're rude. So I need to start sentences. Sorry, this may sound daft, but I just wanted to know if, oh, so sorry. Does that make sense? I'm like, I don't talk like this, but since I've moved here, I do. This is not how I talk. <laughs> I find that so stressful. And I think what it does is just, I think there's nothing wrong. And I love that about Americans is that there's nothing wrong with being proud of what you've created. I'm not proud of it because of what, I'm just proud of it because I know what it feels like not to write for five years and to be unemployed and to be scared and to be lost. So for me, every time I create, I'm just like, wow, this is really awesome that you are full. Your creative life is full. Your life is full. I think it's a bit of the journalism as well. So you see a thing and you're like, oh, but how did that work? Or these are my central questions. So like for the thing I'm working on, I was just like, how does a woman at 40 date again and just be straightforward about her sexual wants and needs? How does a body that's been controlled by societal pressures and other things cope? So those are my questions. And I think it's been a wonderful challenge in a way, but also tricky because I think the culture dictates that you apologize a lot just for talking. So that sometimes gets in my way, actually, just being who I am and navigating the space, but also trying to remind myself not to, because I'm not sorry for everything I am. It seems like it's working for you because you are in all these places and people are calling you a one to watch. And that's really exciting, I think, too, because uh, you mentioned it to me earlier, but the idea that emerging, I've talked about this on this podcast, people are going to be like, why is she obsessed with emerging? But it doesn't equate with age. And it's no. really nice to see that you're putting yourself out there and getting a response to these questions you're asking and these things that you're writing. Yeah, no, I feel very fortunate. And I agree because you often see a call out and it's young and you're just like, are you meaning young age or young in the business? Because in that case, that can be easily clarified. And I think as artists, there's something strange about being obsessed with age, because no matter how old you are, God help you if you're jaded by what you're making. I hope every piece you make is an opportunity to evolve, because what is the point of what you're doing? I think the spaces where it's been so flexible has been the spaces where they've understood that you are over 35, you have had life experience before. You've had other jobs, you've had other things happen. 
but they want you to make the work you want to make based on absolutely everything you've experienced. The subject of culturally bigging yourself up. I'm always so impressed with your sister. So your sister's also a writer, yes? I think she'd say poet, writer. She'd have her own hyphens. Yeah, I think she would. I think she would. But that's one of the things she is. I put a call out, who else should I be speaking with? And she's always, you have to talk to Sabrina. (laughs) It's amazing having that family support, especially when you've moved around so much, both individually and with your husband and with your family. And I do think it's nice to have that anchor, whether it's culturally acceptable or not. I think it's really amazing that you guys have this support system. She's a really fantastic person and how we grew up has really shaped how we communicate to each other. and. Because of that whole migration and moving places, the constant remains the relationships that you have. And I've always thought of her as having, we have a a hope safety deposit box for each other. So where you're down, the other person will just remind you what you are, what you can do, and everything that you are is accepted as you are. There are few people that you can just say the absolute unfiltered truth to and yeah, she's that for me. So it's been very exciting and also new terrain actually to move that sister relationship into writing together. And we're hopefully going to start working on something else together based on uh, genetic beauty. So that's been really wonderful. But I think she knows exactly how much all of this means to me. And I know what her journey means to her. So I did ask you, you sent me a lovely quote that I want to make sure that I ask you about. A quote that kind of inspires you when going gets tough or something that you live your life by. Of course, they sent three. <laughs> I'll give you the, the one that made the most impact to me. Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. And it's Khalil Gibran. And I, I heard it in New York. I'd gone to, there was really someone very generous in New York that I met randomly and became friends with over that period. And I was invited to a housewarming. It was a proper, like in the movies, a proper New York housewarming with, you know, there was art, there were people doing art and playing instruments and the candles were lit. And I was going through a difficult period with a particular piece that I just struggled to really lock into. And one of the poets starts playing this old instrument that I'd never seen before, but it just had this beautiful sound. And he recites lots of poetry and he gets to this line. And I was just like, it just meant so much. And it also, it opened up this door where you're like, everything you've experienced, actually, once you come through to the other side, your understanding improves because that was it for me everything I'd gone through in Norway all the years of unemployment all of that there were many times I was like I really would not I don't want it to seem that oh you have to have a rubbish time to be a good artist but I think it's just about the journey of life and I was shattered but I became somebody that I am actually enjoying a lot now. The way that I express what I think about the things, the questions, artistic questions I grapple with. Yeah, some kind of shift was meant to happen. You are supposed to evolve. I've been thinking like your 20s and 
early 30s are like the pilot episode of a series. You've got to just hang on. Lots of things happen. And then as you get to episode two or three, you're like, oh, okay, I see what's happening. And that's what it feels like now. I don't know. I think the business is tough. So many times I just go, I don't know. But what I like is that my appetite for the work, that doesn't shift. So I often try to just remember, because even when you get rejections and all of that, and it's not this kind of every no door closed is another one, which is theoretically true as well, because maybe that opportunity wasn't the right one for you. But what I think I came out of all of those years of just was realizing that I've actually gained more wisdom. I've gained more sight. I can actually see so much more. And I think I also am more patient with myself and much more forgiving of myself. Making art gives me freedom in a way I've not experienced. I feel the most free. So I just feel like I'm flying when I'm making the work. So it doesn't matter what anyone thinks because I absolutely, that means something to me. It means I have purpose and what I've experienced means I can see in a way I couldn't have seen 10 years ago, 12 years ago. I know that you are actually looking for people that can answer some of the questions that you have about pleasure. I am, I am. One of the things I'm really curious about is where these expectations of what is pleasure come from. So I'm really looking to chat with people and all of it is ethically done because of my journalism background, obviously covering those bases, but also because I'm an artist, I feel what I also have to offer is because I use movement and music, we can play with a lot of those things and you find your own story. And second half of the workshop is really answering some of the questions I have around expectations. And I'd love to talk to both men and women because I think there's something disjointed happening in this conversation. It's the same as what we were saying about race, that you can't talk in a box. You can't talk in a bubble of only white people talking about race or or only women talking about about their own pleasure. It has to be talking. Yeah, it just doesn't work. So I would love if anyone's open to just chatting Uh, Or even just going, explain to me what you're actually doing. Because there's loads of stuff that I'm learning and discovering, but my central question remains, what's happened to desire? (laughs) We're talking a lot too about male-female relationships, but as far as your questions and journeys, are you speaking to homosexual couples in this world or people that are non-binary or transgender as far as the the sexual experience with them very open because i think that you learn more by listening more so for me i'm open to hearing that because ultimately you don't know what you don't know and even if i think that probably the piece is much more because i identify in a specific way it might lean more towards that but i'm more interested in talking to whoever feels like they have an opinion on the subject, because I think it needs to be open and it needs to be redefined. So if anybody wants to talk with you, they can email you, right? Yes, please. I will definitely put some information on how you can do that in the show notes. So if you hear this and you're interested to speak to Sabrina more about sexual pleasure and answer some of the questions, then get in touch. Yay. Thank you, Sabrina. It's been so nice having this chat with you.
Thank you so much, Kristin. It's so lovely to spend this time with you and to get to talk. And yes, let's have a cup, a Zoom cup of tea. <laughs> that sounds perfect. We might need coffee based on this caffeine chat we were having. As long as we schedule no meetings before, I don't know about you, 11. Well. <laughs> <laughs> and good luck with everything. Good luck with the projects. Thank you so much for having me. It means something to me to talk about this journey because I think so many other people go through these shifts. And honestly, if I could have had someone tell me, this is what I went through and this is what I did, it would have helped. <laughs> so hopefully there's something that's sensible for people out there. If you're interested in more information about Sabrina's Right to Pleasure research and development discussion, I've included some of her contact details in the notes. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. Plus. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.